This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others, and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey friends, and welcome to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica Anderson. I'm a Christian freelance writer, mom of two littles, and I'm passionate about helping you live out your best and deepest faith in everyday life. On this podcast, you'll hear from inspiring women, moms, and ministry leaders, authors, and more. Those on mission for God with a message to inspire you in your Christian walk, wherever that may be. Each month, I send out interviews, tips, book reviews, and exclusive giveaways to my email list. If you'd like to receive these things, just head to my website, ericaanderson.com, and sign up. My new book, Reason to Return, Why Women Need the Church and the Church Needs Women, comes out this January, and I want you to be the first to know all the details. Enjoy the show. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and I'm talking today with my friend, Clarissa Mole. Clarissa, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me, Erica. Well, I've been meaning to have you on for some time. We connected through Hope Writers, and I've just been following your journey for probably a couple of years now, honestly, yeah. although we didn't really meet until earlier this year. And your book came out. I have it right here. Your book came out this year, Beyond the Darkness, A Gentle Guide for Living with Grief and Thriving After Loss. Um, beautiful cover, by the way. I love Thank that. You. I think yeah. the cover always makes such a difference. You know, It's just like whether or not people pick it up. It's a huge thing. Yes. Um, so yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you live, your family, and then we'll jump into some questions. Yeah. Well, I live uh, in the Boston area. I'm a New Englander by birth, but I've lived all over the United States in Chicago and Seattle and uh, Dallas, all over the place. And uh, I think that wanderlust has never left me because my kids know that as soon as we have a school break or we have a long weekend, mom wants to get on the road. Uh, I've got four kids. They range from 17 to 10. And um, we are just, we're an outdoorsy family. We're a family who chases adventure. And I think over the last three years, especially Getting outside, being um, in nature, finding new ways to capture joy has just been a vital part of um, of our family life. Yeah. And so um, you don't have to get too into the story, but your book, you wrote that based on, I mean, the experience that you went through after your husband passed away. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about that particular time in your life? Sure. Yeah. Uh, in 2019, my husband died uh, in a hiking accident uh, in the middle of our family vacation. So mm. you never plan for this sort of thing uh, when you take a road trip. But halfway through our family vacation, he died in Mount Rainier National Park, really beautiful place, a uh, place he had hiked many times. He was an experienced hiker and uh, and it was an accident. And I think that's the hardest thing to reckon with uh, for folks who have experienced sudden loss that, you know, there genuinely are things in life you can't control. And um, certainly his death has opened my eyes to the many things that I often thought I could control, but can't plan for and really don't have a hand in. And so it's been a process really of letting go of receiving God's mercy and kindness over the last three years and trying to figure out how you rebuild after something so dramatic uh, enters your life unexpectedly. What was it like in the immediate aftermath? I mean, you had to tell your kids and 
I just can't even imagine the emotions you must have been feeling. Yeah, you know, I I feel like I was so blessed to have uh, guides. I feel like divinely appointed guides through those first days and weeks. Um, The chaplains who brought us the news guided us into telling my children. Uh, They guided me into relating to the media because his death on public land meant that it was reported Mm. on local news stations in the newspaper on NPR. Um, You know, it was not a private grief from the very beginning. And so I had that kind of guidance. Uh, Rob's publishing company, InterVarsity, they wrote the first obituary for him, running interference for me with the media even then. And so I feel like God just... He lined up these people from one after another to be um, to be agents of kindness to us, so that the load that we were required to carry was even shouldered from the very beginning by more than just our family. You know what I thought was interesting. I'm sure you've talked about this before. Is that Rob wrote about death, right? Yes. And so that is kind of just a coincidence, I guess. But um, what kinds of things did he write about? What made him interested in that subject? Yeah, well, he was an editor for Christianity Today and was reporting on the Terry Schiavo case. So euthanasia, right to die, death with dignity, those were all kind of buzzwords that he was trying to wrap his mind around, particularly as they related to faith and uh, how Christians could respond in that cultural moment. And uh, at the same time, he was processing the loss of a loved one and trying to figure out what it actually meant to sit next to someone who was dying. You know, we talked about this in big political and legal language, but what did it actually mean, practically speaking, to have to do this with someone? And I think those two experiences just running concurrently, they um, they prompted him to do what all good journalists do, uh, to seek out more information. And having that nose for news, he dove into research. Uh, he became a hospice volunteer. He worked mm-hmm. at a funeral home on wow. uh, the weekends and in the evenings because he just wanted to understand what the culture of death and dying was in the United States and how we could do this better as Christians. Mm. So of course, you know, all those conversations over the years, you know, you talk to your, to your spouse about what they're doing at work and what they're studying. uh, It really shaped and informed my understanding of what it meant to die and what it meant to grieve. And um, his writing has begun is, has become a particular gift to me in mm-hmm. grief because I feel like I have this wisdom that's been guiding me ever since the beginning. Uh, conversations that we had that I didn't think would apply to me until I was in my 80s now became mm. really relevant in my 40s. Yeah, I can't imagine going back, reading his work on this, like almost like he's sitting beside you, like yeah. as a partner in the grief that, you know, he's not, but he is. I mean, have you thought about, I'm sure you have, like what he might have said to you in this time, like what he might have said to comfort you knowing that this was going to happen? Yeah, I actually, after he died, uh, we were in Seattle and I um, I called my mom and I said, could you bring me a copy of his book? Because you're on vacation, you're not <laughs> carrying that stuff around. Uh, because I just felt like in that moment, I needed to have his words near to me. And I went back through and I read his book and I tried to search for those places that perhaps he was speaking to me. And I actually, I have one that I laminated and printed mm. off on my bulletin board. It says, I love her and I know she will make wise decisions if I am no longer able Mm. to be at her side. And that's from from the art of dying. And, you know, he wrote that as a man in his early 30s who never expected that his wife would need to do those things. 
And yet I see them as a blessing over my life now that he he said I could do it. And um and that kind of blessing gives me courage to be able to do the hard things I've had to do. Yeah. You know, one thing, like when I think of you, Clarissa, when I look at you, I really just see like light and joy. Uh-huh. I really, I hear that in your voice and see it in your face. And, and yet it's like, you're writing about this, about grief, about the hardest things of life. You host this mm-hmm. podcast. Um, what is it called? It's a uh, surprised by grief, surprised by grief. And you're talking about all of these things. And yet you're able to still have this light about you. Can you explain that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it hasn't always looked like this and it doesn't always look like this. And I think that's one of the most puzzling and peculiar things about living with grief is that uh, it is so multifaceted that joy exists alongside of sorrow that on a morning where I may just cry my eyes out in the shower I get out of the shower, put my makeup on, and I go to work. And um, and those things must live side by side. So I think um, there is an element of just that messy, mixed up existence that you have to come to terms with as a grieving person. Uh, we like to think of grief as this trajectory from pain to healing, from uh, sickness to recovery. But the reality is that until Jesus comes again, none of that is actually resolved, that we live in a place where we learn to laugh again. And then we feel guilty for laughing because maybe should we not be laughing because we're supposed to be sad? And then the sadness feels overwhelming. And yet there's a moment of levity that gives us hope. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I think in the midst of those, that the storms of, of emotions that you feel, we have Jesus who is this uh, amazing anchor that provides us the stability to be able to say, okay, these big waves that are cascading over me right now, they're going to ebb away. And the joy that I feel may at one point be replaced by sorrow. But in the midst of this, there is a steadiness that I can cling to in the person of Jesus um, to, to point my feet toward hope and to keep my head above the water when it feels like I'm drowning. Yeah. How has it been, and you have a particular, you can speak into this as a mom, I'm sure that adds a totally different dynamic in how you go about day to day because you you want to be strong for your kids. And so how does that play into how you have dealt with the grief over the years? Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a delicate balance of being real with them. You know, you don't want to be stoic because they're watching you more than they're listening to you, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're modeling for them like what does it look like as a parent to interact with hard things? Do I cry in front of them or do I say that tears aren't appropriate to share with my child? You know, you're trying to figure out what is the balance there. And so for me, it's been about being ruthlessly honest, um, telling my kids when a day is really hard or celebrating with them, uh, trying to introduce them to the complexities of living with loss in a way that's age appropriate, Mm -hmm. while also not asking them to carry the burdens that really only an adult can carry. So there it's about filtering information, trying to think, okay, what do they need to know? What do they want to know? What's appropriate for them to know? And and using those filters before I give them inadvertently more than their little hearts and minds are able to possess. Because Mm -hmm. we know that kids who are asked to bear burdens that they really can't bear at that age um, they struggle as teenagers and young adults. And certainly we want to position our kids for flourishing. And mm-hmm. so um, it takes some intentionality as a parent to do that. Yeah. What is something that surpri- maybe surprised you about going through the process? And then also 
um, maybe a word of encouragement for someone that is in that place now? Yeah, I think that um, it surprised me that the grief doesn't actually ever go away. Mm. I think that uh, there have been moments of joy in my life where I just want to be purely happy again. And uh, I wish that I could actually close the door to grief forever. And um, and it surprises me because, you know, I'm going into year four. You'd think, okay, I've got my feet on stable ground now and I can do this. And I can. And, you know, through God's mercy and his goodness, we've, we've come so far. And yet we have this companion that will always be mm-hmm. present with us. And reckoning with that, I think, uh, is is one of the surprises, I think, that um, that I wish that I could do away with. Mm-hmm. That said, you know, when I think about how how I could encourage someone, how I could come alongside of someone, especially in the early and acute season of grief, I think it is an encouragement that it won't always be this way. That mm-hmm. yes, grief is a companion. Yes, you're going to walk with grief for the rest of your life in one way or another. But the deep pain, that searing ache, uh, it will change that your life will grow around your loss. You'll, as you work hard to integrate that loss into the person that you're becoming, it won't hurt the same way it hurts today. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a mercy from the Lord as well that, mm-hmm. um, you know, he knows what we can bear and, um, and he gives us a lighter yoke and that lighter yoke comes with time and with intention, but, um, but things do start to shift and, and that's a grace. Yeah, I know time is, it's a hard thing to accept in that moment when you realize that's the only thing and you can't make it go faster. Yeah. Um, but it's that control that you were talking about, which, you know, I, I guess also I'd ask about this happened in 2019, right? Was it 2019? Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, and then, and then we went into COVID, which was like a, a national grieving. And so how did those two things kind of intertwine for you? I feel like it was actually a, a peculiar gift because you know, the, our culture is sort of death averse. I think we could say that mm-hmm. pretty honestly. Uh, we don't know what to do with dying people. We don't know what to do with grieving people. And suddenly we were thrust into a, a whole, a global environment where grief and loss were on the front page every day and everyone had to reckon with that. And so I think it made folks around me more supportive, uh, more attentive to my needs perhaps than they would have been a few years before. And, um, uh, knowing that other people were grieving around me was also a comfort. You know, one of the hardest parts about loss is feeling like you're so alone, like no one else can understand how hard this is, what I'm feeling. And, um, you know, it was an unfortunate experience to have to grieve with so many other people over the last mm-hmm. two years, but it certainly gave me a sense that um, that my unique sorrows were also shared universally and mm-hmm. and there were people who would walk with me through it. Yeah. Now it was over the course of this time that you started thinking about this book, no doubt. Um, And so what was it about, what made you want to write? And what made you think this was actually possible that you wanted to to put your story out there? Because it's, it is hard to write about these really personal things. Mm -hmm. Like you have to go back over it. Like you have to get so deep um, to the point where you almost feel like you're re-experiencing things. So what was that like? 
Yeah. the uh, It's often said that you write the book that you needed. And I think that was the case for me. I looked on the shelves after Rob's death, looking for something that would guide me through this. And I found great devotional resources uh, like Lament for a Son or Grief Observed and C.S. Lewis. And then I also found really practical secular resources, but they often denigrated my faith. They mm. would be anti-transformational. They would say, grief is all there is. You've got to just sit with it and suck it up kind of thing. <laughs> and um, I just needed more as a believer. I needed more than that. It just, mm -hmm. it didn't feel like grieving as those, it felt like grieving as those who have no hope. Right, and, right. Uh, and so I wondered, okay, if we took the the honesty and the hopefulness in Christ that we see in this Christian devotional literature, and we actually paired it with some really practical advice. You know, what do you do with all the casseroles that keep showing up and you mm -hmm. have no appetite? What do you do when you can't sleep? What do you do when you feel sleepless or sluggish or don't want to go back to work, have family relationship problems? What if we married those two things together to provide Christians with a resource that was like a one-stop shop for that first year of grief to be able to say, grief is with you. We're going to be honest about what this looks like and what you can do about it. And Jesus is with you too. And we're going to be honest about what that means for your grief experience. Yeah. So what was it? I mean, how did you get it, you know, get what it took to actually do it? And, and, and then, and it's not just writing it. It's like, oh, I also am going to write a book proposal and I'm also going to have to, you know, pitch. And it's like, it's so much more than just the writing. And yes. so that would take a lot of energy. And so, so tell me about that. Well, I worked in communications for 20 years. And so writing proposals, you know, I'd helped Rob write his book proposals, had edited his manuscripts. And so the world felt familiar to me mm -hmm. of publishing and there was a purposefulness that just drove me. I think when you feel like your life is so out of control, to be handed a project or to choose a project that gives you purpose can just be a beautiful way of mm -hmm. pulling you out of that pit. So for me, the book and the proposal process became that for me. It just, it became a lifeline where I didn't know what to take, you know, what step to take in my life in my real life, uh, but I could know what step to take next in this process. Mm -hmm. And uh, one step in front of the other, it was familiar to me. And uh, and it's amazing how the rest of my life kind of came along with it. Uh, I think being empowered to make progress in one area actually gave me bravery to make progress yeah. in a lot of other areas. That makes so much sense because I feel like a lot of people in that kind of a time would not pick up a project Mm -hmm. But in a sense, like you almost need to do that because yeah. if you're just focusing on the loss, um, that can really, I guess, I guess, hinder your flourishing um, in the, in the aftermath of it. And so I can see myself doing something similar, just, I mean, maybe just as a writer, but I can totally see how that would be a really healthy way to process and move mm -hmm. forward. Um, how have friendships become more important to you? You know, when we're married, sometimes friendships aren't as big in our life because we just, you know, you have kids, you're married, like you just don't have as much time for friends. But I imagine that friendships became really vital to you in this time. Yes, I have totally redefined what family means. Uh, family used to mean a husband and wife and their kids. And 
their families of origin, you know, on the on the outer circle of that. But it was really the core of who you were was, you know, these people that you had birthed or adopted or, you know, that that were your family. But now family is anyone who chooses to love and be loved in return. And so I have found that I have extended the table in ways that I never did before, found friendships that were unexpected because I see now that the people who show up for you in your darkest hour those are your friends. Those are your family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I think about uh, Jesus at the cross where he says to John, you know, this is your mother. <laughs> I'm redefining family for you here. And in your darkest moments, you cling to one another. And I found that uh, friendships do that. Uh, and I'm so blessed to have found new friends who understand the me that I am now uh, after Rob. And I have these friends who have been dear for decades, who are the underpinning of the confidence that I have now to be able to move forward in the life that I'm building without him. Yeah. And let me ask you this. How was your church there for you? And then speaking of churches, Mm -hmm. is there anything you would say churches should do better or could do better in, in someone's grief? Yeah. Well, we were new at our church when Rob died. We'd only been there a year. But I have to tell you a story that just so encapsulates how my church cared for us. We were at uh, the funeral service 3,000 miles away, and uh, I'm standing in the narthex of the church, and I look up and I see a set of familiar eyes. Mm. And it is the youth pastor of our church who has flown out from Boston to Seattle. That makes me want to (laughs) cry. To be at this funeral. And, you know, we had known her for nine months. It was only a school year, but the church felt like it was important for her to be present. And she felt like it was important for her to be present. And when I think about what the church can do, what the church did well for us, it was that gift of presence. You know, we are, we are so good at showing up with cards and casseroles in the first month, and then the support kind of dribbles away. But the support that grieving people need is that gift of presence, the I'm not going to abandon you. Six months later, I'm going to remember you. Another Mm. woman at church would bring me a meal every 19th of the month. Rob had died on July 19th, and she would show up every 19th of the month to bring me a meal for that first year, which when you consider we were in COVID times at the very beginning, sometimes it was like, I'm going to set this on your front porch and I won't come near you (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) because we couldn't have any interaction. So, um, but that, that sense of being remembered, the sense of being, uh, having someone walk beside you, that is what the church I think can do well. And it doesn't take a professional to do it. Uh, it doesn't need to be a pastoral ministry. It doesn't need to be an initiative of your church. Mm -mm. It just needs to be peer to peer people in the pews, uh, loving and walking beside each other. Yeah, just, you know, it's just that that idea of a, not a strategy, but like a longer yeah. term plan to be there for people, because I'm sure that is the case that it's, you you know, lots of lots of love and attention for a couple of weeks. And then mm-hmm. it's like, we're still here where the grief does not go away. And so I'm sure that literally everyone could do a better job, not just the church, but so many people that, you mm-hmm. know, are part of our lives. So that's, that's really good advice. Um, so Last question on this part of our interview: um, Who did you write the book for, and what do you what do you want the overall message to be when someone reads it? Well, I a lot of times writers are encouraged to create sort of like an avatar, you know, your ideal reader. Who's your ideal reader? And early on in my ideation about the process, I decided I would call her Jan. 
Jan is my ideal reader. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jan lost someone that she loves dearly, and she doesn't know what to do next. She's had a lot of cultural ideas that have been presented to her with kindness, perhaps, but are unhelpful. And uh, she's trying to figure out how can she um, how can she process her loss while also cling to Jesus, because sometimes it feels like God is so far away. And sometimes it feels like she's not sure what step she needs to make next. And so this book is for Jan um, or for Joe, her her male counterpart. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it is for that person who who genuinely loves the Lord, but um, but feels like it's not enough to simply place a Bible verse on top of that sorrow. It's not enough of a band-aid. They need something more. And um and I hope that uh, this book becomes that kind of resource for folks, that it becomes dog-eared and underlined and highlighted. It becomes really a handbook uh, for folks that when you bring the casserole with you, you bring a copy of the book because you say, mm-hmm. all right, this is this is to feed your, your body and this is going to be something to feed your heart and your soul as you figure out what comes next. Uh, just that a representation- that um that i'm i'm here i'm willing to invest in you and i think that this would be helpful for you as you step forward that just made me think of someone i'm going to give this book to this weekend actually (laughs) (laughs) it's such a great idea though because it's like food yes that's physical and that shows love but to offer something more to think about the holistic Mm -hmm. um part of ourselves that are grieving in all ways mentally spiritually emotionally physically all of these things like to, to have, you know, just a couple of ways to, to offer that instead of just one. I think a book is always a great, great mm-hmm. idea. Um, and a book like this one that is, you know, full of faith based guidance too for Christians, I think, um, really, really important. Well, Clarissa, um, before we end this part, I always like to ask people, what are you reading lately? And, um, what have you been listening to podcasts, recommendations, things like that? Yeah. Well, I am reading, uh, I, I always have a bunch of books that I'm working through oh, right now. Oh, me too. Always. I think as I reflect on my 17 years of marriage, I've become so much more fascinated by how relationships work. And I'm currently reading a book called Eight Dates from uh, the Gottman Institute out in mm-hmm. Seattle. They do research-driven uh, work, uh, re- relationship work. And I'm just sort of fascinated at like, how did my marriage actually, how was it so good? And so I'm kind of going backwards <laughs> and reading relationship books, parenting books to figure out like, how did we do all this stuff? Because it it wasn't all that intentional. Um, so I'm really, really enjoying that book. And I'm also reading another book by Tim Chalice that's brand new. It's called Seasons of Sorrow, uh, The Pain of Loss and the Comfort of God. And I've got to say, if there was a book that spoke my heart as far as um, what loss has meant in my relationship with Jesus, it is this book. I'm really, really enjoying that. So I don't read a lot of grief books, but um, highly recommend that one. Um, I just, it just made me think when you were talking about the Gottman stuff is I am trying to remember the book that I read. I want to say that he was a co-writer of it though. I read this back in my twenties and it was something like, it was something about dating and not taking it too seriously. And I'm like trying to Google, I can't find it, but whatever it was, that is the book that sort of 
ultimately led me to meet my husband. So oh, wow. <laughs> Very yeah. cool. Yeah. 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 When you're going through relationships, you're not all that intentional. And we do that with parenting a little bit. I think when our kids are really little, we're like, how do we get them to sleep through the night? You know, that kind of thing. But I, I do feel like it's good to reflect on that, on our parenting, on our relationships with our in-laws or our parents, you know, and our spouse. Um, so yeah, maybe now that I, I'm not married anymore, I'm just thinking more about how we did it well. Do you, I'll take some advice. Do you have any, have you come up with anything, some top fives or anything? (laughs) Well, I think as I do reading, the number one thing that I have noticed is that um, we have this, we have this posture of thrill that is just endemic to our culture when it comes to relationships, like date your mate and make it exciting when you've been married for 25 years. Yeah. And, and there's a truth to that. There's a truth to that. You want to keep the this the flame alive, that spark. But there's also a real beauty in the ordinariness of of a partnership that's committed. And when I think about my marriage to Rob, we didn't do date night every weekend. And he didn't send me flowers on big anniversaries regularly, but I knew that he was committed to me and I was committed to him and we showed it in daily acts of service. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, in a culture that is, that prizes the sort of thrilling aspects of romance, it's good to remember that good, solid relationships are built on the ordinary mundane moments of self-sacrifice and, and loving service to each other. Yeah, that's so good. That's your next book, Clarissa. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are working on a new book. Can you tell us anything? Are you working on a book proposal? Yes. Can you tell us anything about it? Two proposals in the works and, you know, fingers crossed uh, about what that could mean, Mm -hmm. but just trying to explore what grief looks like for other groups of people, for kids and teenagers, uh, for young adults, because I think they um, they need resources too that are gospel based, not simply just uh, gaining information from TikTok on how to deal with your yeah, losses. Yeah, you know, I feel like teens and young adults really get like the short end of the stick when it comes to resources sometimes, because as yes. I as I do things online for, you know, Christian moms and stuff, I get a lot of questions from people like, what do you have for teens? And I'm like, well, first of all, I'm not there yet. So I don't have much advice for teenagers. But secondly, I don't have a lot of things to refer them Mm -hmm. to, I feel like. And so I'm seeing it happen. I'm seeing you're saying this, I'm seeing some other folks that are really honing in on that age group for different issues. So hopefully that will be rectified very soon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have a lot of resources for parents of teens, right? But when you're looking for something like, what can I actually hand to my kid? Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that teenage years are important to have resources like that because they're not wanting to have those conversations with their mom right. or their dad necessarily, yeah. but they are surprisingly open to the book that you slip on the bed or slip under the door. You know, you find it later on tucked under yeah. the pillow. They're paying attention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, where can people find you, Clarissa, if they want to connect with you? Yeah, you can find me at clarissamall.com. I'm also hanging out on Instagram. I love being there and connecting with uh, readers and followers. I I believe that when you're grieving, you should never feel alone. So I respond to every single DM and uh, email that I get because uh, when someone is willing to share their story, I want them to know that um, that they're heard and known and um, and that Jesus is with them in this. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, pivot. <laughs> <Ta-da>! <laughs> um, actually, I thought of a question I forgot, but this will actually go well with this the, this writing part. Okay. Um, 
All right. We'll start over. I'll cut this, do it separately, but sounds good. Hey everyone. Today I'm talking with my friend, Clarissa Mole. She is a freelance writer and a published author. And I want to talk with her today about her writing journey. Um, We have a lot in common, so hopefully this will be fun. Clarissa, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, where should I begin? I did not prepare because I feel I felt like this was just going to work out. <laughs> yeah. um, but tell us a little bit about your writing journey, like where you came from and where you are now. And then I'll yeah. dive into some questions. Okay. So my undergrad degree is in communications. And uh, after college was done, I worked in corporate communications, uh, nonprofit specifically, for almost all of my career in tandem with teaching public speaking and uh, intercollegiate debate. So I had like the public speaking piece of it. And then I would also serve as a media liaison. I was writing press releases, white papers, um, marketing materials, all kinds of things, basically providing the services that a nonprofit organization couldn't provide because they didn't have the resources to have like a marketing department or a comms department or something like mm. that. Uh, so I, um, I was writing, I've written for the last, you know, 20 something years, uh, in, in my relationship with my husband, my husband was a journalist. And so, um, he was writing for a variety of outlets. He worked as an editor for Christianity Today. And then he was also writing freelance writing for the Wall Street Journal and uh, The Hill and you know a, a ton of other publications. And so um, we were working together all the time. I remember in our early married years, sitting across the table at Caribou Coffee and he's working on an editing project. I'm working on one. And then we would swap laptops to like, you know, <laughs> like hey, can you edit this? And I'll yeah. edit yours. Um, so it was just this beautiful symbiotic kind of relationship that we had around writing. And um, and after he died, I was looking for something to provide income for my family, but that wouldn't sacrifice the FaceTime that I had with my kids. Now, as a single mom, I just felt like I've got to be able to be present with them, especially as they cope with loss. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't want to go back to an office. So freelance writing became the thing that I felt like was a pathway forward for me. Maybe not a full-time forever kind of path, but certainly it was ground that was familiar to me, something I knew. And um, and so I started writing again, but this time writing as a contractor, writing exclusively for myself. Mm-hmm. And how did you go about getting those jobs when you started? <laughs> That's a big question that people have. It is. Yes. I mean, so first it was reaching out to anyone and everyone that uh, Rob or I had known. Uh, It was reconnecting. And as as someone who had been an employee, I didn't keep up those networks because I didn't really need them. So it was reestablishing those relationships. Hey, you know, if you ever need something in a pinch, I'm your girl. Uh, and sending links along like, Hey, I just published this thing for free somewhere Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. trying to build that bank of clips up again. And, um, and then it was just being really proactive about, um, seeking paying work, which Mm -hmm. is so hard for you, for, uh, freelancers when they're starting, you're building Mm -hmm. your clips. You feel like you've got to take a lot of jobs for free, but then, you also have to keep the lights on. Right. And so that's where I felt like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to work toward writing a book proposal. I'm going to aim for some of those larger publications that will pay me while at the same time, understanding I need to cultivate this, this network here and that I will have to write for free for a while until yeah. I'm established enough. Yeah. I think, you know, that's the thing with freelancing is that 
you have to actually really want to do it because, um, because there are sacrifices and it is sort of a climb up a ladder. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't know about you, but for me, you know, just having, getting my name out there and like publishing something, there's a thrill in just, even if it's free, like, you're just like, Uh Hey, I wrote this, you know, it's like your creation. And so, um, it's not for everyone to Mm -hmm. do this, but if it's something that you love, that you want to do, um, you can put the work in and put the steps in it takes to get to the point where you are getting paid and you are, um, better understanding the industry, better understanding Mm -hmm. how you can get paid and where you can get paid. Um, now, what is your favorite kind of writing to do? Mm, I think it would be, I mean, I think it would probably be more like a personal essay. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's where I feel most comfortable. You know, I've done reporting writing, but it's it's not what I was trained in. And so it's a little bit harder for me. Uh, I really like promotional writing too. So anytime I can write a book review, I love oh, writing fun. book reviews. That's great. Um but yeah, I think it's more of that personal essay writing. And like you say, you know, writers are a dime a dozen. And it, if you don't submit something that an editor wants, there'll be 10 other people who want to want to send their work in. Mm-hmm. So that the drive, the passion for it, I think can't be underestimated. I uh, have so many notes all over my desk of <laughs> ideas that I have. As soon as I think about it, I think, oh, I got to put a post-it note, yes. just stick it on my desk because I might want to develop this idea later. And there is nothing more thrilling than writing out a pitch and hitting send and being like, all right, fingers crossed. Let's see if this comes back. I know. That creative process, uh, it's, you know, it's the sort of hunter gatherer. I just, I get so juiced uh, sending away pitches. It's if I could pitch all week long every day, that's <laughs> what I would do. I think you love pitching more than I do for sure. <laughs> But it is a thrill because it's like you've put in the work, you have this idea, you've built it up. Um, and it's it's just like it's not really the finish line, but it's like, yes. do you get to actually start doing the race or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing too, I think that even if you get a no, that that's not necessarily the end of the line, that you yes. can always go to the next place or tweak it or whatever you need to do. There's always another step. I think that's the cool thing about the writing world is that like it never dies. And I also like to say that. Um, no writing is ever wasted because we learn from it. We grow and no pitch is ever wasted either because you learn a lot from what you get from editors. Like you learn a lot, whether they say nothing or give you feedback or not, like you begin to understand like maybe why didn't this work? And you have to sort of, it's almost like uh, data analysis sometimes mm-hmm. when you're thinking about why didn't this pitch work? And and it can be almost like a formula sometimes in terms of what you put into that pitch, depending yep. on who you're pitching. Um, and each publication is different. Um, so when you first started getting those writing jobs, were they the kind that you wanted or were they like kind of um, like, when did you get to the point where you were writing for publications that you were like, yeah, I've been published in the Gospel Coalition or I've been published here Mm -hmm. or there to where you were like really proud of the stuff you were putting out there. Yeah, I think it took me, um, it took me probably, it wasn't until maybe the fourth piece that I had written where I felt like I had landed where I wanted to be. And, um, and, you know, I, I look at those early pieces that were just in sort of random small scale publications. And I think that was, that was, those were building blocks for me. Mm -hmm. That was really important because I learned how to interact with editors. Uh, I had always 
known how to take feedback because I'd worked in communication. So you were used to, you know, have you a thick skin, you know, you can't fall in love with your words, let them be edited and shaped by someone else. But I also learned how to push back a little bit. You know, I'm not, a, I am a compliant person. And mm-hmm. so pushing back on an editor where I felt like, mm, the way you want to say this is kind of reshaping my idea. Um, I was able to learn that on a small scale so that when it came time to publishing at larger outlets where I felt like this is more of where I want to be, I had the the confidence to go into those editor-writer relationships. And I also was able to troubleshoot before I sent the item mm-hmm. to the editor. Yeah. Which I think sending the cleanest copy is just always your best bet. And uh and I I was able to learn that in the smaller projects that I did. Yeah, I think it's kind of like with the pitching, you start to, you know, ask yourself the questions like, well, would I click on this or yes. would I is this interest? Is this even interesting? Is this is this unique in any way? And so you start to learn to ask yourself those questions. What are some lessons that you've learned from the pitching process, practicing it over and over again? Well, I think one of the things you taught me actually, which was when, when someone says no, turn around and ask someone else like mm-hmm. right away. And that was something I didn't do. I would sit on the no, not ruminate on it, but I would just be like, well, I guess that pitch won't work. And so I would mm-hmm. start on a new idea I had right. instead of saying, okay, well, it doesn't work for that publication, for that editor. How do I, do I need to tweak it a little bit to send it off to someone else? Or so that was something that I, I'm grateful for our friendship because yeah. uh, you taught me that. Uh, the second thing was, Uh, that I didn't need to chase the news. And this was Mm. a hard thing for me to learn. Mm -hmm. There were a couple of uh, pieces that I wrote where I would get an idea that was super newsworthy and I would try to connect it with my lane, you know, the writing that was in my lane. And I would get into the writing process and be like, I actually don't want to be the voice who's speaking on this right now. This is a hot topic. Yeah. And realizing that about my own personality, just like I'm not a hot topic person. Mm -hmm. So maybe even though I have the pitch idea, maybe don't chase that one or Mm -hmm. let it sit for a little while until the news buzz has slowed down a little bit and and offer some more thoughtful commentary after the fact, because Mm -hmm. it can be newsworthy still as we reflect on it, maybe two weeks later. Yeah. Um, but I think having a journalism husband who was always like, do we get to break the news? Can we be <laughs> the ones who break the news? I had this sense of urgency that I was like, well, if I have an idea, I've got to hop on it right now. But there are some ideas that are better let to simmer. Yeah. And that can be stressful too. Cause you're like, oh, well, I have to write it right now. And then it's like, yes. I have to drop everything. And, and sometimes that can work, but it can get very exhausting and it may not work out. And then maybe you've wasted your time. And also I think when you're thinking about like the hot news, like there's hot news of the day, right? Mm-hmm. There's also trends, like yes. larger trends. And especially if you were to write for a print magazine, I mean, they don't do, they can't do hot news. No. And so print magazines are definitely relying on the larger trends that are longer term. And so there are different ways I think that you can look at what is relevant. And so um, unless it is sort of like your job to write about what's going on, it's very hard to fit that in. And I've had to learn that too, because I've had to stop myself and be like, look, you do not have time for this today. Like you cannot (laughs) tackle this right now, because what if they don't even take it? And then, because, you know, it's just, it's a, it's, it's, it's a time game that you're chasing. And so I think that's a, that's a really good lesson. Um, What was I going to say? Okay. So tell us about um, you know, what makes you motivated to keep pitching? Why do you love it? You said you loved it. Yeah. 
I love the byline. I, I <laughs> the byline high. It's I so love great. the byline. Um, it, it, that is just, it's a really cool experience to see your words in print, uh, to be able to know that something that you have said is going to last forever now. And, you know, when I think about my husband and all of the words he wrote for all of those years as a writer, and now, you know, he has passed away and I have all those. This is like a, a repository mm. of his thoughts through the years. And I just think there's something really cool about that with the written word that is, you know, spoken word is great, but it's ephemeral. And this is something that lasts. So I I really like that about writing. I think also writing allows me to process my thoughts. And uh, I'm a person who needs the time and space. And so I do feel like when I have a finished product in front of me, when I've got an article done, I can look at it and say, yeah, that's actually what I think about this topic. And so there is a processing that happens for me that is really helpful just in my personal life to be able to um, to think through a topic that I haven't thought about or from an angle I haven't considered. And uh, I find that really, really satisfying. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you, you mentioned earlier about staying in your lane, um, and you are so good at that on social media. And I think one place that a lot of writers sort of feel like they're lacking is is really understanding how to integrate their writing with social media. It can mm-hmm. be really difficult because social media is so flashy and it's so, of course, video focused these days. Um, and I remember maybe it was a year and a half or so ago when you popped up in Hope Writers or somewhere I saw and you were like, how do I do these real, like I'm talking about something so serious. <laughs> like, how do I make this where people actually want to watch these things? Like I'm talking about death. And yet I see your, I have watched your Instagram and it has grown like crazy and you've managed to find a way to do the social media well. So can you tell me, how did you do that? How did you figure that out? Yeah, I think from, so as social media moves more toward video, I think finding your niche in a difficult subject can be really challenging. I write on bereavement support, which is not, it's not goofy. It's not TikTok worthy (laughs) in any way. But, um, but what it's forced me to do is to be creative about my topic, to set it and then like a diamond, look at it from different angles. Okay. So what, what about this topic is something that could become a reel. Uh, so I had a reel that ended up doing really well. It was about, um, I was shopping for prom dresses with my daughter at David's Bridal and took some footage there and talked about how, you know, I had worked at a bridal store and even though I'm not married anymore, um, you know, I still love love and mm. I still celebrate other people's joy. That one, that was great. Was it about grief? Yes, it was about grief, but it wasn't all about grief. And so I think doing well on social media, if you want to work with the algorithm and, you know, there is some conflict about that. Some people say, I want to be who I am and I don't want to, um, to bother with that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I respect that, uh, that kind of position, but I come to social media from a marketing and communications perspective, Mm -hmm. which is entirely different from a a purely a writing perspective. So I look at it as a marketing tool. I look at Mm -hmm. it as a way to draw the reader in. And so for me, it's how do I position my content in such a way as to meet someone for the first time and catch them to say, okay, I want more. Mm -hmm. Maybe not more specifically of this goofy reel or 
this, you know, poignant moment that you have on a reel, but um, I want more of what is behind this. And that's the stuff you'll find in the carousel posts and uh, in my newsletter and, you know, the other resources and my book and, you know, mm-hmm. the, the longer form resources that I have to offer. So I do look at social media more from a, um, a comms perspective, I think, than purely a writing publishing perspective. Yeah. And to those that are watching, I would say as writers, you have really a wealth of content to to pull from. I am the queen of repurposing content. I take one thing and I turn it into five different things um, for different platforms. Um, So you can take those words and you can turn them into video. You can turn them into your newsletter, your captions and all of these things. So think uh, just bigger in terms of, you know, you wrote a paragraph that you love. Well, you can do so much with that. Um, a lot of times if I write something or one particular thing seems to be very popular, I'll be like, oh, like I did a TikTok video recently and it got, it was like really popular. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, I got to do something else with this. So then I take it, I remake it for Instagram. I turn it into my, part of my newsletter, turned it into a post, all these different things. And so people think, oh, you have to do all these different things, but really it's just a matter of how resourceful can you be with that one piece of content that you already have? That's right. That's right. And this is a welcome mat. You know, remembering that this is a welcome mat it is the entry point on the funnel for your reader to come to you. And so you're giving them just a taste and you don't have to sell your soul. You don't f- need to feel like you're selling your soul to, you know, the the man uh, when you do that. I think that kind of strategic planning is just a really smart and uh, and wise way to use your content to draw new followers, readers, you know, people engage, in, right. increase engagement. And you can be thinking like, again, like we should be with all of our writing, we should be thinking of the reader. It's not really mm-hmm. about us. It's how right. are we going to reach them? How are the people that we want to see this message going to see it? And if this is a way to do that, let's think about how to do that. And it also then gets more creativity flowing in your Mm -hmm. brain. Like you might come up with another idea to write about, you know, or somebody leaves a comment and you're like, oh, that's a great question. And it's just sort of this ongoing pathway to all kinds of things. And so I know that's harder for some people. I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, you and I are creatives. And so like, that's probably easier for us than others. But um, when it comes to specifically, especially if you have a book, you kind of have to think like a marketer. If you're just freelance writing, you don't necessarily have to think like that. But at the same time, like you are going to get more attention on it if you can Mm -hmm. create this brand. Um, One example is uh, a girl that I follow on TikTok. She is a reporter for Vice and she has just I mean, turned her reporting into like this TikTok, like huge thing. She's got tons of followers. And I think by, I think she just won like a big award. And um, I kind of, I haven't been doing it to that extent, but I have been taking my articles. And what I do is like, I put a green screen and I'll put my article behind me. And then I will kind of talk about the highlights from the piece. And has this been like a huge success yet? Not really, but I'm sort of just playing around with it to see, you know, TikTok is, specifically and people don't like me when I talk about TikTok because they're like I don't want to do TikTok I'm like I'm sorry I've had a really great experience with it I like got on there and like ended up getting a lot of like traffic and so um and I've also grown my email list a lot from TikTok um so anyway all that to say um you don't have to do it all but experimenting with some of it can be really good and if you want a great example of how to stay in your lane and do it you should follow Clarissa's Instagram <laughs> because she does it in such a good way. Thank you. Um what are you thinking in terms of 
you know, what are some dream places that you want to publish or, you know, what are you thinking as you're moving ahead now as a writer? Yeah. When I think about it, I've got three that I really dream of. Uh, I think about writing piece for the Washington Post, one for the New York Times and publishing in the Houses of Worship for the Wall Street yes. Journal. I just feel like those three, uh, you know, it's like I could die after that, you know, like I will, I will achieve but, my- but- but you're a writer, so you won't. You'll just be no, like, right. I want it again. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those those would be my that would be my dream my dream three. Um, and you know, there's uh, my husband wrote as a ghostwriter for a long time, so he he ended up publishing in all kinds of different outlets, and it, it was interesting to watch his experience as a ghostwriter because. Uh, he was writing for the president and CEO of a large humanitarian organization. And so he would publish in places and it wouldn't have his name on it. And Mm -hmm. so that byline high was not a part of the experience at all, but the, but the achievement was still there. Mm -hmm. And it's just a good reminder to me that as much as I chase the high, as much as I, um, you know, would love to publish in those top three, um, that my worth as a writer is not measured by um by the the size of the publication that i write for it's a, mm-hmm. it's not in how famous my name becomes you know it, uh, is it a household name do people recognize it on the street it's more about uh working toward the goal faithfully that i have set before myself mm-hmm. and i think that as a writer we deal with rejection all the time we set our aspirations so high and uh it's good to be reminded that there's a balance there that as much as we have big dreams and we should chase them with everything we have, um, that every step in the process is something to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's something that I just appreciate having had that experience watching him to realize, yeah, you can feel a lot of accomplishment even when nobody knows that it was your byline. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and also something you know that you have to deal with when like you go through points in time where it's just not working out. You are getting a lot of rejections and you can get burnt out. I got super burnt out a couple of years ago where I was just like, I don't don't even want to do this anymore. I'm sick of this, you know, Mm -hmm. but you know, I, then I took some time away and was able to come back to it. But also, um, you know, the small audience is still important. Every single person is important. And so I've thought about that with my newsletter. It took me a really long time to get to the point where I was really dedicated to my newsletter. Cause I was like, I don't know, you know, this isn't, like, oh, it's not public. So, you know, oh my goodness. But at the same time, like I have been, I have started to put a lot of really dedicated effort into my newsletter and think really deeply about who I'm talking to and who I'm speaking to. And the best Mm -hmm. advice I've always heard is just like, speak to those who are there, even if it's just like five people. And then you can find your really authentic message because you're talking to people that are there that want it, that are giving you feedback. And so there's a lot of different components to this, but um, you know, I just love the idea of 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 knowing that your writing matters, even mm-hmm. if it's not, you know, in the Wall Street Journal. Like it still matters and your voice is still important. And and that whoever you don't even know who needs it, but you got to get it out there to tell them. That's right. Um, so I could go on about that all day. Um, but so let's finish up this interview. Clarissa, tell people um where they can find your work and your book. 
You can find me at clarissamall.com and I'm on Instagram at mall Clarissa. Don't go to Clarissa Mall because it's a rather spicy uh, account. You're not, you'll recognize (laughs) right away that you're in the wrong place. Um, But my book, Beyond the Darkness, A Gentle Guide for Living with Grief and Thriving After Loss is available at booksellers everywhere now. And um, yeah, I'm excited about its existence. And as a writer, you know, you put something in the can and you're just (laughs) off and running to the next thing. Right. um, It has to be that way. You have to just move on. I like that. You can't just wait around. (laughs) That's right. So, I mean, if you want to find out what's what's new and what's coming next, uh, connecting with me on social media or at my website's place to go. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.